A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is part three of our ongoing mini series about Rav Baruch Ber Leibovitch, the famed Kamenitz Rosh Hashiva. And this episode has been generously sponsored anonymously by a close family relation to Rav Baruch Ber. And I think that part three is right before the end here of the Sukkot holiday, we're approaching Simchas Torah, and I can't think of anything more appropriate for Simchas Torah than stories about the life uh, about, of Rav Baruch Ber Leibovitch, the love and the uh, love of Torah and the manifestation of Torah greatness that Rav Baruch Ber represented, and he was, is definitely in the spirit of Simchas Torah. Now, the last two episodes generated, I don't know if it's because Cholomayit, everyone was was bored, so they happened to listen, or it actually was good episodes, so people listened. Um, but uh, we generated a huge response and feedback, and a lot of the letters were really great. And so I'll, I'll select a couple of them, uh, mainly clarifications, uh, corrections of w- what was said. Um, one, I forget which one, if it was part one or part two, I mentioned the story, I think it was part one actually, of um, Rav Baruch Ber, a story that Rav Ruderman uh, said over and related about his visiting Elizabeth and Rav Baruch Ber had previously visited Elizabeth and had in, in, in the different uh, different reactions to the local rabbi's daughter, uh, daughter singing by the Shabbos table. So I got the following correction. I really appreciate it. So I'm going to read the letter to you so that the correction is fully clarified. Um, I mentioned that the rabbi of Elizabeth, who who was the host in the... Uh, I incorrectly said that the host was Rav Pinchas Taitz. So, so here's, the, here's the letter I got. I quote, Rabbi Taitz was born in 1908. Rabbi Baruch Ber was in the U.S., in 1928-1929, the latest. If Rabbi Taitz had daughters, they were only three years old at most. No comparison to Rav Ruderman's visit when the girls were older. It was either with his newly married wife or it was a different rabbi. Or it never happened. Perhaps Rabbi Taitz was still in Europe in 1929. In a side note, the Chassam Seifer had a bas zikunim, 
Many years later, she was a guest at her older brother, the Ksav Seifer. When she joined the Zmiris, her brother motioned for her to be quiet. She exclaimed, Don't be frummer than the Tate, than the father. And of that part of the letter, he goes on to some other anecdotes as well. But let me clarify a few points. First of all, the first point that it wasn't, it couldn't have been Rabbi Taitz is absolutely correct. And I was quoting it from memory and I remembered Rabbi and Elizabeth. So I automatically, when you think of Rabbi and Elizabeth, you automatically think of Rabbi Taitz. And uh, of course, the years don't match up. So in reality, the one who was was simply Rabbi Taitz's father-in-law, the previous, his predecessor as the rabbi in Elizabeth, Rabbi Lazar Mayor Prail, who was also a very interesting individual and a prestigious rabbi and a product of the great Lithuanian yeshivas, and he was also a rabbi in the early years in, in, in YU, in Rabbi Yisrael Hanan. And um, so he was the rabbi in Elizabeth before Rabbi Taitz was, and Rabbi Taitz eventually married his daughter. Rabbi Taitz didn't even live in America in 1929. He was still in Europe. He only came in the 1930s. So it was with Rabbi Lazar Mayor Prail, uh, the the rabbi of Elizabeth, that this story took place. Um, so it was my mistake. Now, one of the suggestions that uh, that the letter writer wrote was that perhaps the story never happened. So the one who related the story was Rudiman himself, and he said over the story about how it happened when he was there, I wouldn't say that uh, Rev Ruderman is not the type to have a completely fabricate uh, a story, so I don't know if I would go there. Um, so it's a Ruderman story, and it's my mistake. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's that version. So, But what's interesting is I got another letter from another knowledgeable listener that, that brings an entirely different version of the story. And here there's a quote from a biography but Rav Taitz and his family, his daughters, and here is a completely different version of the story. So I'm going to quote directly from this bio of Rav Taitz that a listener uh, very kindly uh, submitted, and here it goes. A fa- again, it's a different version of the of this story. Um, a famous scholar of Baruch Berlibowitz came to the United States to raise funds for his yeshiva in 1929. Was a guest of the Prales in Elizabeth. For Sukkot, for Sukkot, because he had students with him, the Prail daughters gave up their places in the table in the Sukkah and ate inside the house. When Zmiris began, the girls, following the Litvish custom, joined in the singing. A student questioned whether this was koil isha, that is, listening to a woman singing, which is prohibited. Rav Baruch Ber said, "As mezokt filis retmenit vegin kol isha zezogent filis mitanigin." When one says prayers, one isn't concerned with Kailisha, they're saying prayers with a melody. This was Basia's account. Hannah recalled a slightly different phrasing. They're praising God with a melody. Both sisters heard Rebarch Ber affirm that they could sing. Next page, one second. Zmiris, he did not question the halachic judgment of the great Talmud Chacham who was his host. And then it goes on to say about how there are other versions of the story, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and the author of the book goes on to discuss which version is correct, but it brings this version as well, which is also completely different than what I said. So apparently there's several versions of the story, and the uh, knowledgeable group of listeners that Jewish History Soundbites has is more than welcome to choose which version 
they're most comfortable with and seems the most accurate. If we go back to um, to uh, the the life of Rebaruch Ber, we left off in 1926 when the yeshiva set it, set up in Kamenitz, and these become to a certain extent, extent, excuse me, the golden years of the yeshiva of the Rebaruch Ber's life. At this point, Reuven Grzovsky, his son-in-law, is primarily the one in charge of the yeshiva. It's golden years as far as the study of Torah is concerned in the yeshiva, and as far as the shiurim of Rebaruch Ber and the expansion and growth of the yeshiva, it's disastrous years financially, and that causes Rebaruch Ber and Reuven to, go, to make an extended trip to uh, the United States to fundraise, which ultimately didn't help that much, and the yeshiva very much struggled uh, till till uh, till left communists. Um, it's a, it was a small town. And uh, it became a top yeshiva, you know, the reputation of Rebaruch Ber's shiurim and him as a person, as a Russian yeshiva, spread far and wide. And he was considered the top shiurim, the highest level shiurim in the entire Lithuanian yeshiva world. And everyone wanted to go study by him. Um, and, uh, you know, there was, like I mentioned in the last episode, but there continued to be connections to the mir. There was, uh, there was, there was grad, graduates of, of, uh, of, of of Kamenets who would end up in the mir and bring Rav Baruch Ber's Torah to the mir, and this further spread um, the the Derech Halima, the style of learning, and the Rav Baruch Ber's Shiurim to different yeshivas around the yeshiva world. It's an interesting story, actually. One of the great students of Rav Baruch Ber was Rav Elia Chazan. Rav Elia Chazan later was the Rosh Yeshiva in Tayrvadas in Brooklyn, and he escaped with the mir at the beginning of the war. But uh, so he he left Kamenitz and and he and he went to the Mir eventually and you know Kamenitz like most other yeshivas was for regular aged uh, yeshiva students and when uh, a, an average yeshiva guy a yeshiva student got old enough and he felt uncomfortable in his yeshiva so very often they went to the Mir the Mir was a place where they had a lot of older students late twenties early thirties even mid thirties. And therefore, uh, it, it ended up a place that, from all the yeshivas in 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 the Lithuanian yeshiva world uh, at the time, very often they would end up in the mir. So Beli Chazan, when he was old enough, he wanted to leave the mir, but he was such a close and top student of Rebbe Ber that Rebbe Ber did not want him to see him go. So Rebbe Chazan escaped to the mir when he later on he escaped with the mir out of Europe. But this point is well, years earlier he escaped to the mir from Kamenets. When Rebarch Ber was away, I'm not sure if he was in America or he was away for something else. Either way, um, so when Rebarch Ber got back, he was very upset that his top student wasn't there. And Rebelli Chazan heard that his Rebbe was upset and that uh, bothered him, that his he caused his his Rebbe, Rebarch Ber, to be so upset. So he went back to Rebarch Ber and he said to him, and he said to him, test me on any shear that you gave, anything that you've ever taught me. If you catch me on one point that I got incorrectly or that I don't remember, the way you said it in Yiddish was, if you catch me on one knech, on anything that you ever said in a shir, then I'll come back to Kamenetz. And the Baruch Ber was not able to catch him, or just, you know, maybe because of his, he, you know, the expression of that confidence that it was such a close Talmud that he completely mastered his Torah. Perhaps that was enough. I'm not sure if he actually tested him or not. But either way, Rebaruch Ber blessed him and, and allowed him to go uh, to the mirror. So there, you know, the Rebruvain uh, Grzovsky is struggling with this financial situation, and but the yeshiva did grow, 
and um, but eventually war breaks out, um, and though almost all the yeshivas go to Vilna uh, at the beginning of the war, um, there's a couple of differences in the way that Kamenetz ended up in the yeshiva. Most yeshivas arrived in Vilna because Reb Chaim Eizer Grudzinski um, summoned them there. And Baruch Ber didn't come that way. He, it was his own intuitive sense. He, he, he said, let's go to Vilna. Vilna's going to be a safe place. And it was, uh, it was almost like, uh, you know, uh, like a prophecy of some, like a, like a Hasidic Rebbe type of a miracle, uh, you know, prediction that he said we should go to Vilna. And they went on, on his initiative, not because they were summoned by Reb Chaim Eiser and they, uh, arrived in Vilna quite early. Um, in fact, it was a time of confusion because Kamenets, like most of that area in eastern Poland, was first occupied by the German army, who were surprisingly not so violent when they arrived in Kamenets. And, and, and then it was a few days later, because of the Molotov and Ribbentrop uh, non-aggression pact, so the Red Army, the German army retreats, and the Red Army, the Russian Red Army moves in. And the, the and to show you how no one knew anything at the time, and no one could predict what was to happen. Uh, many uh, yeshiva students said, perhaps we should retreat with the Germans, and it would be better under German occupation and under the communist Russians, who are not going to allow a yeshiva to function and Torah study and religious life, and they had no idea what was coming as far as the Nazis were concerned. Um, but either way, they went to Vilna, which at that time was becoming neutral. You know, Russians, uh, Stalin was returning that to Lithuania, which is, of course, a famous story. Um, but the second difference is about the Kamenets going to Vilna is that essentially the Kamenets yeshivas, Knesset's Beis Yitzchak, they're returning to Vilna. Vilna was their home for close to six years, not that long before, only 13 years before. So they're simply going back to Vilna. It wasn't working out in Kamenets, so they're going back to Vilna at the beginning of the war. And Rebarchar passes away shortly afterwards, just a few weeks later, um, on the fifth day of Kislev, and we'll get to his burial and his rediscovery of his burial site soon. That's a whole story in itself. Um, Rebarchar, during the years in Kamenetz, he had a private, he was already older, he had a private minion in his house. He didn't usually daven in the yeshiva. And in that minion, one the boys, the students at the yeshiva who were privileged to, to daven together with Rebarchar would so, so they said over, one of them, Chaim Shapiro, was a famous, uh, later on, writer, and he lived in Baltimore, and his books are fantastic, and articles that he wrote, and real, uh, real get a feel for the time, very descriptive of, 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 of Lamja and Tiktin and other places. He also has a, about Rebarach Ber and his years there. And he says that his mind would sometimes, Rebarach Ber's mind would sometimes wander in learning during the Torah reading. So he'd ask the Balkaire to repeat a passage of the Torah reading. And then he would beg forgiveness from the Balkaire for asking him to repeat it. So you get, you get the whole picture of Rebarach Ber in that one little, you know, that his mind was always wandering and learning, that he was very particular about hearing every word of the Torah reading, so he would ask him to repeat it. And then he would beg his forgiveness that he was asking him to do it. Amazing story. Now Rebarach Ber would deliver a shir twice a week in the yeshiva, on Mondays and Thursdays. And on the way, he was accompanied by a whole group of students. There's even a couple of pictures like that. And on the way, they would be speaking and discussing and learning, and it would get very animated. Excuse me, animated. And but he would never lose uh, lose lose himself in the discussion. He would con- constantly ask his students to keep eyes. You know, we're talking about the dirt streets of the 1930s and in old. 
Polish town where there were horses in the streets. And if there's horse manure out on the streets and it smells, then it's forbidden to discuss Torah topics. So he would say, keep an eye out to make sure that there's no horse manure around so that I could continue speaking and learning. It's something that he was cognizant of the entire time. But in a certain way, Rebbe Baruch was removed from the world. In fact, during his trip to the United States, he was uh, invited to attend an Agudas Harabanim uh, conference, a convention uh, in New Jersey. And they asked him to address the state of Judaism in the United States at the time. And uh, he was a prestigious guest. But he looked around the audience. He saw a group of European rabbis. So he's like, uh, you know, overwhelmed. He belted out a shear. He, he delivered a shear. I'm going to talk about the state of Judaism now. Here I have a group of Talmidei Chachamim in a room. So it's an opportunity to deliver a shear. That's, and no one knew what he was doing. He just was completely unplanned. Um, again, uh, the two sides of, of Rebarach Baruch On one hand, he had, though he did try to stay out of politics, but he did express uh, a very strong opposition to Zionism and the Zionist movement of Herzl himself, um, of the Lida Yeshiva and the Mizrahi, of Rav Reines, who... Um, but at the other hand, on his trip to the United States, I mentioned in an earlier episode, he spoke at Yeshivi College at, at Rebbeinitz Gachanan. He gave the main hespid at the Maichetur Ilir, Shlomo Poliachik's funeral at Yeshiva College. Not only that, but the Maichetur Ilir was a Rebbe in Lida and was a, somewhat affiliated with Rav Reines and the Mizrahi and that whole thing. So he was able to be someone truthful to his ideals, but yet be someone who, you know, was above it in a certain way. During his trip to the United States, he stayed very often, like I mentioned in an earlier episode, at the Herman home. And it was during that time when he was in America that the Hebron massacre uh, took place. And Baruch Ber had a son who was studying in Hebron. Again, that also says a lot. You know, we said that there was two Slabatki yeshivas. Uh, one of the other letters I received, I didn't read it. Uh, one of the other letters I received was, was um, you know to clarify about the the uh, the revolt in Slabatka in 1897 that I mentioned in the last episode, and it wasn't just a revolt anti musar talking about you know, top boys who were great in learning and, to, and Torah study, and they wanted a Torah-only approach, and and it wasn't a a, a wild uh, uh, revolt, uh, you know, um, like a. Now, obviously, the, the whole opposition to the Muslim movement needs more clarification, and we should devote an episode eventually, eventually to it. But it was, you know, there's a lot of nuance there, and and uh, and what the, what exactly the revolt was about. It wasn't definitely the letter writer is correct in saying that it wasn't just a wild revolt of of uh, you know uncontrolled youth. Definitely was far from it. There was, you know, a very strong ideological backing, and great rabbis were involved, and it was. It was what's the correct approach for Torah education in Slabatka at the time, um, which perhaps we'll go more in-depth into if we ever get to an episode that covers the opposition to the Musar movement. But in any event, what I'm, the point I was trying to make was that Rebaruch Ber had a son studying in Hebron. Hebron is Slabatka, is the other yeshiva, the Musar yeshiva. So he sent his son there, or his son went there. I don't know if he sent his son or he went there. But either way, so Rebaruch Ber was a guest at the Herman home at the time when the news broke about the Hebron massacre. And Rebaruch Ber, who's the great Torah leader and Torah scholar, he asks Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Herman, who's a layman, who's his host, who's, and he says, do you think my son is safe? And Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Herman says to the great Rebaruch Ber, I have a feeling that your son is safe. Amazing interaction. 
as recalled by Rabbi Yaakov Herman's daughter, Rucham Hashain, in the book of All for the Boss. And, um, and it turns out that it was. His, his son was, was spared and he was not uh, hurt in that terrible massacre. Um, speaking of Rebarchber's family, so I mentioned Rebruvain, who, um, who, uh, was his son-in-law and ran the yeshiva, and he eventually reached the United States at the beginning of the war. He was the head of the Agudas Yisrael in, in America. Um, he formulated a lot of the policy eventually. He became a very uh, prominent Torah leader in America in the, in the immediate post-war years. Um, he was also in a very strong opposition to Zionism. Um, he helped formulate the official Aguda, Agudas Yisrael policy of recognition of the state of Israel and working within the parameters of the state of Israel while maintaining an, an ideological opposition. In other words, the question when the state of Israel was founded was whether to fight it or oppose it rather uh, from from outside, meaning non-recognition, the position that it was eventually taken by the Eidah HaKaredis in Yerushalayim, and, um, and the Agudas Yisrael, which eventually took the position of working from within and recognition of the of the state and the government and participating in in the elect, election process and the uh in the um in 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 in, in everything um and uh and Rebruvain was one of the ones who actually formulated that policy. He also wrote an interesting book uh Bayois Hazman, the problems, the challenges of the time which you know discusses a lot of the secularization and the movements and the isms and the haskala and all the challenges of the modern modernity and, and what to do about it and how to face it in, in the traditional sense in the Torah world. He passed away relatively young, um, but his descendants continued in Medrash Elian and Munsi and, you know, and Garishers and the Grzovskis and other families and a prominent uh, Torah family. Another son-in-law was Ramesha Bernstein. Um, and together, Ramesha Bernstein and Rabbi Yaakov Ramesha Leibowitz, the son of Rabbi Baruch Ber, and uh, they founded the Kamenitz Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. They escaped to um, to Yerushalayim, to Israel, at the beginning of the war. And they founded the Kamenitz Yeshiva, which uh, flourished and continues to flourish in Yerushalayim till this very day. There is a yeshiva, we mentioned it in the Bar Park episode, uh, the yeshiva in Bar Park, Teres Emes Kamenitz. It's named for Kamenitz, but there's no real uh, affiliation with, direct affiliation with the Kamenitz Yeshiva, as, as far as I know. Um at the Rebarach Ber wanted to be buried. He found his last weeks of his life. He was in Vilna and he expressed a desire to be buried next to his father who was buried in Vilna. In the, you know, the old Jewish cemetery in Vilna in Shnipeshak was already full for many, many years. And the second cemetery in Vilna was in Zaretsha, another suburb of Vilna. Today there's already a third cemetery in Vilna which was opened after the war which is an active cemetery, but in those days, Zaretsha was the one that was used, and he wanted to be buried next to his father. Now, his father was was buried in, in a, an area of the cemetery that was very crowded, so they weren't able to bury him. They couldn't find the burial place there, but they wanted to, uh, you know, follow his his wish, so they buried him. Uh, they found a way to, be, to bury him next to his father, but not in the same direction. In other words, he lay perpendicular to his father and not parallel, which um, which was an amazing, um, you know, coincidence, coinc- amazing, would helped in the long run because 
you know, the Zaretsha Cemetery was destroyed after the war and uh, or in the course of the communist era and neglected, abandoned, destroyed nature, a combination of a lot of factors. And Rebarach Bears, like everyone else's cover there, was except for Chaim Eiser Grzynski, who was, tra- was transferred to the new cemetery. Him and his family members were transferred to the new cemetery. And of course, the Vilna Gain was transferred to the new cemetery, but he was transferred from the Schnippeshuk Cemetery to the new cemetery. Chaim Eiser was transferred from the Zaretsha Cemetery to the new cemetery. Either way, so Rebarach Bears' cover was lost. And uh, several years ago, there was an attempt made to find it and without getting into the entire lengthy and, and uh, you know, there's all kinds of legends attached to the story also, but there's a whole you know, lengthy process of finding Rebarach Bear's cover, but one of the ways they found it was when they x-rayed the area where they assumed that the cover should be. They were looking for uh, two bodies or skeletons that one was, you know, buried in the wrong way for that row, meaning there would be buried, you know, a bunch of bodies, uh, um, uh, parallel to each other, and then the last one in that row would be perpendicular, would be facing the other way, and that would be, obviously, and it would be at the end of the row, and that would be Rebarach Bear's cover. So that was one of the ways that they were able to find it, and today there's already a nice, beautiful matzeva on his cover, and we it's always a prominent and important and powerful visit whenever we go to Vilna with the groups, and they say stories of Baruch Bear and Davin there, and experience that as well, which we were not able to do until a few years ago. Um, to, to, to be able to be by his cover. Uh, Rebarach Ber was known for his songs, one of the only Lithuanian Rashi Yeshiva who was known for that. His compositions, he also had a beautiful voice. He was the Chazan on Musaf, on Rosh Hashanah, on Yom Kippur. But it wasn't just Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, it was his Lechadaydi every Friday night. It was beautiful. Again, it's not so, so common in the Lithuanian world. Um, there was a student of Rebarach Ber who was one of the one of, was one of the was a non-famous Bielski brother. We know that the Bielski brothers were partisans in the forest in in during the war and they had the Bielski family camp where they saved twelve hundred uh, of their fellow Jews and um, and uh, and again, like, uh, unlike most partisan groups, they saved. It was a family camp. They saved children and elderly and the sick. They didn't save just fighters. So they're, you know, those are the famous Bielski brothers, uh, Zisel and Tuvia, and Aaron is still alive, and and uh, you know, the fourth one's escaped me, the one who was killed and is fighting for the Red Army at the end of the war. Um, and but either way, there was another brother. There's quite a few siblings actually, but there was another brother, the only one of the twelve Bielski siblings, who went to learn yeshiva. Oh, most of the Bielski brothers were not religious. One of them went to yeshiva and he stayed religious. He was the only one of all the siblings who stayed from, who stayed orthodox. And he was sent to study by Rebarach Ber in Kamenitz. And at the beginning of the war, um, he asked Rebarach Ber what he should do. And Rebarach Ber said to him, Zolir bleiben in lernen, zolstir bleiben leben. If you remain and always connected to learning, you always try to study Torah every day, no matter what's going on around you, no matter what's happening in this war. Then you'll remain alive. And he survived the war in Siberia, not in the forest. He was sent by the Russians to Siberia before the Nazi invasion, and he survived the war. And the Baruch Ber's blessing uh, bore, you know, it was, became true. Um, Rebarach Ber had also had an interesting, you know, well, good relationship with Hasidim. Rebarach Ber, of course, was non-Hasidic, 
but then uh, he had with Lubavitch. Uh, there are many boys from Hasidic homes in Kamenitz, studying in Kamenitz Yeshiva, primarily Ger and Alexander, Polish Hasidim, but he got along very well with the uh, different Hasidic groups and individuals. He was very fatherly to his students in general. He would invite them over for Shabbos meals, and they would eat by him, and he would kiss them goodbye at the end of the year when they would go home for the summer and stuff like that. Um, and, and and very often when his Talmudim were by him, that he would tell them stories about, you know, I guess history. He liked history, perhaps. He would tell them stories about great people, and there was something he would like to share with his Talmudim. And uh, in his modesty, again, from the Kamenitz years, there was a local rabbi in Kamenitz. And Baruch Ber not only was a great Torah scholar, but we, you know, we mentioned in the previous episode that he was also a prominent Paisik. He was a community rabbi for many years. But he would never answer halachic queries in Kamenitz. He always deferred all questions to the local rabbi. We have a local rabbi. He's the one in charge. He was very fiery against modernist elements, Ascala, and I mentioned Zionism. So one time there was an attempt to open a Tarbut, Zionist school in Kamenitz. And he gave a speech to the town. It was one of the only times he got involved in communal affairs. Most of the time he was strictly involved in his own yeshiva. And he said, why did I leave Vilna? I wanted to come to a quieter town, to a small place which honored Tyra. And he said, when I came to this town, you townspeople showed me res- such respect that I felt, I felt uh, ashamed he, uh, that, that, that you were honoring me so much. And he said, when, when I came into the town, you removed the horses from the wagon and you pulled the townspeople, pulled the, pulled my wagon into the town and made me feel so uncomfortable. But, but someone explained to me the townspeople of Kamenitz have such respect for Tyra, uh, that, that, that's why they're doing it to you. So I, I, I let it go. And now the townspeople in Kamenitz are allowing a Tarbut Zionist school to open. How could it be? The Chafetz Chaim advised me to choose Kamenitz because it's such a prominent Torah uh, town. And he started crying. And um, I don't know if it had an effect or not, but this is definitely uh, what he felt and what he felt strongly about. When he arrived in Vilna at the beginning of the war, again, I mentioned that his positive relationship with Hasidim and with Lubavitch, so he sought a yeshiva out for his younger uh, for uh, for younger uh, yeshiva for younger boys for two of his grandchildren who were the age of a younger you know young teenager yeshiva and he had a relative who was a rebbe in a Lubavitch yeshiva in Vilna and he told him it was a good yeshiva so he sent his grandchildren there so Baruch Ber's grandchildren in Vilna attended a Lubavitch yeshiva um, and on that last period of time in Vilna Baruch Ber was also preparing to publish his his sefer um, Birkas Shmuel. Uh, there's a letter actually from Baruch Ber that he was preparing to publish it prior to the outbreak of the Second World War for publication in Bilgarai, which is in Galicia, in Poland. And then the war breaks out, is, is in 19, September 1939. So the first edition of the Sefer is fascinating. There's a title page and an introduction that's printed on different paper in Vilna, in the Vilna printing press. But the Torah papers, where all his Torah is, is a different color. And it was printed in Bilgarai. The proofs came from Bilgarai. They were already basically all printed before the war broke out. It just hadn't been published. It wasn't time. So they were sent to Vilna when the war breaks out and they finished the printing there. And what's even more fascinating is on this first print edition, it says, the title page says, 
This was submitted to me by a very knowledgeable listener who, who uh, was kind enough to give me all the details of the publication. Fascinating story. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, the title page says, printed by me, Me'isi, from me. Rebarch Ber speaking in the first person in 1939. But a page later on the introduction page, it says that the B'nai Hagain HaMechaber is at Sal, the children of the of the uh, of the author, the one who you know he passed away already. It says the author passed away on the fifth day of Kislev in Tafshin, which is the end of 1939, a few months later. So, so this is you know it was probably the last one or one of the last svarim printed in Vilna, which was actually printed during the war. And it's interesting is that the first printing of Reb Chaim Brisker, uh, his, his sefer, uh, um, which is Rebarchmer's Rebbe, and he was very involved in the printing, it was just three years earlier, 1936. Rebarchmer was very involved in getting it printed. And that first edition of Reb Chaim Brisker's Sefer and the first edition of the Birkas Shmuel look almost exactly the same. The, the, the similarity is uncanny. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not. And uh, immediately after the war, in 1947, right after the war, Reb Chaim Zimmerman, who is Rebarchmer's nephew, he publishes again the Birkas Shmuel, this time in New York, in what was seemingly Reb Chaim Zimmerman's own publishing company. So, um, so in, in, if you read that introduction to the first uh, printing of Reb Ber, and you get a, some interesting historical facts, which unfortunately has not been republished in subsequent editions, and I don't know why, and, uh, and there it says that the content of the Sefer came from the Shi'urim of Reb Ber during the last period of time in Kamenetz. So that means that it came from Shi'urim. Now, the, 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 uh, the Masechtas there that's covered, that covers sometimes uh, 40, 50 blot, uh, pages of Gemara from each, from each Masechta. Now, Rabach Ber was the biggest Lamdan out there, and he covered over 50 blot in one Masechta. So, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't know if he would be considered a Lamdan today on that criteria. But um, it seems that Rebarch Ber was involved in the publishing process. He edited it, he arranged it, and they started the printing in Bilgarai, but then the war breaks out and the move to Vilna and the passing of Rebarch Ber. So then it, his, his children uh, were able to put it out. Um, in a, I want to end off uh, with a couple of stories. Um, one I saw brought from Reb Gershon Edelstein. May he live and be well. The Rashiva in Panavish and Benebrak, he grew up in, he grew up, a child, he grew up in Europe, but he came quite young to, um, to Israel. And he lived in Ramat Sharon, where his father was the rabbi, and later his older brother, Yaakov Edelstein, who was already passed on, he was the rabbi. And he was in Ramat Sharon, which was a small place near Tel Aviv in those days. Today it's a big city. And in the 1940s, and, and Rabbiashan Edelstein, as a child, recalled seeing a very simple Yid, a, a simple Jew, old-fashioned European Jew, not a big Talmud Chacham, but he studied simple Gemara with Rashi. He would read the Gemara and translate it into Yiddish to himself, studied himself for hours on end, with a sweetness, with a love, and with great consistency. So Reb Gershon Edelstein, as a child, asked him once, how, you know, Basically, he was asking, I don't know if he actually expressed it like that. He probably didn't want to insult him. He said, you don't seem to be like the biggest Talmud Chacham in the world. You're not studying the Torah in depth. You're just reading it in a very simple way, and you seem to have this amazing sweetness and love and sitting there for hours on end. 
How do you do it? How do you maintain that at your age? And this man, who's anonymous in the story, he said, I studied in Kamenitz by Rebarach Ber. And what I learned from Rebarach Ber, what he gave over to us was a sweetness and a love for Torah. Now we think of Rebarach Ber again as the Derech Halimud, as the big Lamdin. And we assume that, you know, the average student of Rebarach Ber in Kamenitz was someone like Rebarach Hazan, a great Huge geniuses, Talmud HaChacham, and people who later became Rashi Yeshiva. Here we see Rebarach Ber as an educator, and who, who sees that his job is to give over a sweetness for life, a sweetness for Torah, a love for Torah. And not everyone in Kamenitz was the big genius, but they got what Rebarach Ber was, was truly trying to give over. And, uh, you know, there's, and Rebarach Edelstein was trying to, you know, bring out his educational point with that, but I think it's just a beautiful story to end off with about Rebarach Ber Leibovich and his legacy. And this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, uh, sources, tours, trips, lectures, sponsorships, virtual tours. And you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.